0: Well, hello. Uh, Excited to be opening God's Word together. Uh, Just as we begin, hands up who had a good night's rest last night? Hands up. Oh, not many. Let's give it a score. Who who reckons they had a, a 10 out of 10 night's sleep? Hands up. No one. Nine? Eight? Seven? Why don't you turn to the person next to you and find out what their score was? How did they sleep last night? I know Andrew had no sleep already, so don't worry about Andrew. All right. That's a very quick question. That's a very, very quick question. Hopefully, you know how well the person next to you slept. If they didn't sleep so great during the sermon, just give them an elbow nudge here or there, um, just to, as, as, a, as an act of love to them. All right. Let's pull back. Okay. Now, um, rest is such a good word, isn't it? I mean, I was asking Dorette earlier, how was your weekend? And she said, oh, you know, I had the weekend to myself. It was very restful. That's good. We like rest, don't we? Now, trying to find rest or trying to find ways to rest better really has been a kind of a I mean, it's been a craze in some ways, right? It's been a craze. Probably the easiest way to tell uh, that it's been a bit of a craze is just a number of businesses, companies, that have kind of shot through the roof um, who are kind of in the rest business, the rest industry, if you like, from apps like Calm um, to mattress-in-a-box companies like Koala. there are technological companies to help you track the quality of rest you get every night, too. I don't know if you've heard of this company. Uh, I believe you pronounce it Ura. Like not not like Ura Ura, but I don't know Ura. Anyway, Ura um, Ura develops smart rings, right, that are designed to help you analyze your sleep. Uh, so every morning after you wake up, it'll produce a report for you in, an, in the app that it has, and it'll give you a detailed look into the quality of your sleep, uh, how deep your sleep was, what percentage of your sleep was light rest versus deep rest versus uh, REM rest and all that sort of stuff. Uh, it'll factor in things like your bedtime routines, and it'll spit three scores out of 100 for you, a sleep score out of 100, an activity score based on what you did the previous day, and a readiness score to give you a sense of what your body can handle in the day ahead. Now, the point of the ring is so that you can, you know, begin to adapt things in your life to optimize uh, your sleep, your rest. Now, I don't know about you. I'm just, that makes me tired just thinking about how much work I need to do just to get a good night's rest. But here's the thing, yeah. These companies exist because they are scratching where people are itching, aren't they? They They're scratching where we're itching because um, there is a tiredness. There's a restlessness, there's a weariness, especially in modern global Sydneys like Sydney, isn't there? It's pretty common to hear in workplaces, in education institutions, schools, burnout, fatigue, exhaustion, that's all there. And there's been plenty written and spoken about to explain why that happens, to present solutions for it, and I'm sure there will be many, many more. Uh, But as we come to this particular passage in the book of Hebrews, I hope you heard throughout our Bible reading that when you read, it's got quite a lot to say about rest, Uh, not in the sense of how well you sleep uh, each night, that that sort of rest, but but a deep and better rest. A a rest, if embraced, uh, might actually help us to sleep a little easier each night too. I hope you're intrigued by that. Our outline today, we've got two main points. First point, biblical rest. We'll explore that together. And then the second point, considerations to enter biblical rest. So biblical rest, considerations to enter biblical rest. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, we've just read that it is alive and active. That it is sharp, it can pierce and penetrate even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And in many ways, that's a terrifying thing. But as we come to your word, we pray that we might be expected that you would do that um, heart-piercing work for us this morning. Help us to hear what we need to hear. Uh, direct us the way that you need to direct us uh, so the way we might be living for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so first point, biblical rest. Now, if you had a chance to study through this passage in uh, community groups this week, you'll know that there's a lot going on in our passage here. So I thought uh, to kind of give us a frame of reference as we work through the passage, uh, we'll first touch on the different ways um, it speaks and develops this idea of rest in the Bible because it covers a lot of ground. Now, um, hopefully by doing so, we'll get a clearer sense of how God wants us to respond. So there are really four main ways the word rest gets used in Hebrews 3-4. to um, Four senses of rest, if you like, or even more accurately, um, four historical points that rest is used. Two of them are based originally from the Old Testament and two are based in the New. So what are the four ways rest are used? Um, let's look at the two Old Testament references first. The first and the biggest one, um, biggest because it takes a lot of airtime in the writer's thoughts, uh, is that rest uh, is the rest promised to the ancient people of God, Israel. Yeah, by entering the land that God promised to them uh, in a country called Canaan. Now, Psalm 95, the psalm that the writer quotes a bunch of times, four times, and he keeps coming back to, uh, reflects back to the events when Israel was in the wilderness and they were about to enter the promised land. So in chapter 3 of Hebrews, we see the writer refer to Moses, uh, the leader that God used to lead Israel out of Egypt. In chapter 4, we get a brief reference to Joshua, the successor of Moses that God uses to eventually lead Israel into the land. Yeah? Now, this promised land, Canaan, symbolized for the ancient people of God, rest. Right? They were a new nation, and this was rest that they were longing for. Right, They'd come from slavery out of Egypt. They were miraculously saved and redeemed by God. They'd become a new nation with new laws to flourish under him. And they were supposed to enter this promised land, a land flowing um, with milk and with honey, um, signs of great abundance, where the work they now would do in the land wouldn't be meaningless and toil like they did back in Egypt as slaves, but is now out of their God-given freedom. In this land, they could enjoy and be satisfied by the uh, the fruit and productivity of their work. Uh, This promised land represented... um, uh, represented that, that they, they had been given rest by God, that they could leave behind their slavery and restlessness. All right, that's our first reference to rest. Our second reference to rest, again from the Old Testament, is about God's rest at creation. Yeah, God's rest at creation. In chapter 4, verse 3 to 4, we see the writer say, for somewhere, uh, he knows it's from Genesis, by the way, but from somewhere uh, he has spoken about the day in these words, on the seventh day God rested from all his works. Right? The rest of God at creation. Now, God at creation, he didn't rest because he was tired. He didn't rest because he was exhausted because he did all this work of creating. It's not like he needed a nap, right? At the end of God's creative work, God rested. Why? Because he saw everything he'd made, including humans, yeah? made in the image of God and in his likeness. And he was utterly satisfied. He was utterly pleased at what he had done. And so he could cease his work. He could rest from his work because he was pleased and because he was satisfied. That's our second reference to rest. The other two come from the New Testament. Uh, the thir- so the third one is that the writer speaks of rest that rest that is um, a present reality yeah, for Jesus' followers and for people who put their trust in Jesus and follow him. Uh, chapter 4, verse 3 is a pretty clear indication of that. Have a read, 4, verse 3. Now we who have believed, past tense, Enter that rest, just as God has said. What's the point? That rest, in other words, is a gift from God that's available to us. It's possible for us if we follow Jesus. It's an experience that we can now have. And that's really important for us to hear, isn't it? That rest for the Christian is and can be a present reality. That following Jesus, trusting the promises of God, holding to Him, and letting His Word do its work in us by His Spirit, it can and should help us in our restlessness. We can taste a bit of God's rest here and now. And I wonder, you know, just a quick, quick sort of question for you is that something you've genuinely tasted in part? Maybe not all the time, but can you think of a time? maybe don't go too far back, that you've actually entered into that present experience of rest. God wants to give you that. He has given you that. That's the third way our writer speaks of rest. It's a present experience. But the fourth and final way, uh, and the way that most of us are most probably familiar with, and really um, the, the, the emphasis of where the writer goes, is that not just there's a rest presently we, we can experience, there's a rest that is yet to come. In glory. In glory that this rest belongs to the future. It belongs to another day, chapter 4, verse 8. It's a rest that we must strive and make every effort to enter, chapter 4, verse 11. And there's a warning to not be counted as one who is not able to enter. It requires, chapter 3, verse 14, us to hold firmly to the very end. In a way, we are like the Israelites. We've been redeemed from slavery from Egypt and we are now on the verge of the promised land. We have a taste of rest because we have God already, but we are on on the brink of an even better rest. Except for us, our better rest isn't a promised land that only provides a type of rest, a partial rest. Our rest is the culmination of what God wants for his people. It's a rest that is far, far greater. Now, um, we didn't cover chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, uh, just for time's sake. But the summary of chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 is basically that Jesus is better than Moses. Right? Just as Jesus has been better than the angels, Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is a creator, not created like Moses. Jesus is son over God's house, whereas Moses is a servant in the house. Right? And I bring that up because our passage can be summarized by saying Jesus, again, is better than Moses because the rest he offers is far greater than the rest that Moses was leading the people of God to. Jesus is better because he offers a far, far greater rest, but that rest is something we have entered but are yet to fully experience and to fully enjoy. It's a rest that we are still striving towards. That's in glory. Now, there's a lot. So, uh, again, let me summarize it so I put it there for us. The writer refers to rest in four different but related ways. Rest in the promised land of rest that the prophet Moses and Joshua were leading God's people to. Rest in the way that God uh, rested after work in Genesis. Rest in the way that Christians can now experience rest having trusted Jesus. And fourth, rest as in the future better rest God is bringing us to that we are yet to enter. Now before we move on, again there's a lot, that's a lot. It's worth pausing because I wonder whether you've ever thought about how big a theme therefore rest is in the Bible. That rest is at the very beginning. That that, that we we have had as the people of God different expressions of rest that God has provided throughout history in various ways and forms that He wants us to experience. And that at the very end, God is bringing us to a final rest in glory. It's all the way through. Why is that significant for us? Well, I want to say at least one reason why, and that's this, that God actually cares about rest, true rest, even more than our restless world does. That God cares about rest even more than we might. I wonder how that sits with you. Maybe we are more likely to think of God as someone who just mostly wants more out of us, more from us. Maybe we picture God like an adjudicator of a high jump competition, where he just keeps raising that bar higher and higher and higher and higher, and he says, jump Maybe God and His demands are what is front and center for us. That we just see God as wanting us to pray more, to go to church more, to read the Bible more, to give more, to make more disciples, more, 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 all the time more. And while there's partly a rightness in that, right, that our Christian life should overflow into transformative action, God's love for you and for I has never once been based on our productivity, has it? It's never been based on our productivity. God's love for us, seen most clearly in Jesus' death on the cross for us, is because he chose to love you and I at our worst. His love for us has always been because he first came to us. As we heard last week, Jesus took the first step to us, to be our pioneer, to bring us to glory, to be our champion, to defeat death and and the devil in our place. And so even though God is the only being in the universe who could actually demand that we never stop, that we never rest because he actually doesn't have to, unlike us, even still he rests. Even still he makes our universe in such a way that we rest. And he will bring us to enjoy rest in its fullness once more. God cares about rest even more than we do. It's stamped and progresses all throughout his revealed word to us. He's made a way for us to enter the rest that he provides to us now and for all eternity. Maybe that's something you need to hear. Now, with that promise of rest in mind, um, let's now turn to our second point, yeah? Considerations to enter biblical rest. Um, Because the writer doesn't bring up all those versions of rest, those connected versions of rest, to show off his Bible knowledge. Right? The point of all that groundwork is to lead us towards God, to lead us towards his plans for us. Yeah? How? Well, uh, the writer points us at least two things for us to consider. Uh, to look for what is harmful and to also look for what is helpful. Yeah? To look for what's harmful, to look for what's helpful. First, look out for what's harmful. See, what does the writer urge us to be on the lookout for? What might harm us from that promised rest that he has for us? I want to say that the key verse is chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12. Have a read. Chapter 3, verse 12. Um, See to it, brothers and sisters, the writer writes, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. In other words, we need to be on the lookout for the pull and temptation of what? Unbelief. Why does the writer single out unbelief? Why is unbelief what we need to be particularly looking out for? Surely it could be other things. Well, recall that the letter to the Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish Christians, yeah, Uh, who are considering giving up the Christian faith. Um, They had heard the gospel proclaimed to them, chapter 4, verse 2. They heard the good news that Jesus lived, died, rose to save them but they've experienced a bunch of difficulties, great difficulties, because they were believers. And so now returning to their former belief, Judaism is on their minds. And so the writer features Psalm 95, right? And he does it a lot because through it, the writer is comparing this first generation of Israelites in the wilderness, these these people's ancestors, to their situation as Jewish Christians. The Israelites were delivered and saved by God. The Jews in the book of Hebrews had experienced deliverance and salvation by Jesus. The Israelites experienced great difficulties in the wilderness. And now they are also experiencing great difficulties. And so the writer goes, how did did this first generation respond to their difficulties? How do they respond to God? Well, we won't read out the full quotation again, but what does that psalm reveal for us? Um, And we'll look back at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 7. In the midst of difficulty, what what, what did the Israelites do? Well, that first generation hardened their hearts to God. They rebelled against God in the wilderness, chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 9, they tried and tested God. Verse 10, their hearts always went astray, and they did not know God's ways. Friends, the generation, this generation, who witnessed God parting the Red Sea, who saw God bring plague upon plague upon plague against their captors, who glimpsed God's glory at Mount Sinai. They're the same ones who just three days later, after crossing the Red Sea, ask, is God with us? They're the ones who ask, is the Lord among us or not? They're the ones on the brink of entering the promised land with all the mighty acts of God behind them, the way that he single-handedly crushed the superpower of their error and all the promises that he has made for them to be with them and to bless them in this land of rest. They're now afraid to pick a fight with six foot five dudes inhabiting the land. And so the writer asks a bunch of questions at the end of chapter three from verse 16. Yeah? From verse 16, he says, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was God angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief is the issue. Unbelief made the very generation who saw these mighty acts from God gradually harden their hearts to Him in the wilderness, treat God with contempt, and ultimately turn their backs to Him. And so the writer says to the Jewish Christians, and to us, by the way, look out for unbelief. It's harmful. Just as it prevented the ancient people of God from entering God's promised land of rest, unbelief will gnaw and prevent you from entering God's rest. Now our passage has makes some pretty nuanced points about unbelief, right? That unbelief um, is something that we choose to actively do. Right? It's something we choose to actively do. Right? Chapter three, verse 12. It's sinful. Chapter 3, verse 16, it's rebellious. Chapter 3, verse 18, it's disobedience. So if we harden our hearts, that's on us. That's our decision. Unbelief isn't something that we just kind of slip over like a banana and unintentionally fall into. We choose to actively unbelieve. But the other nuanced point about unbelief is that it's something that can persist. Yeah, Unbelief is also something that can pers- persist. That's why belief, the opposite of unbelief, Um, is holding firm, the writer keeps talking about, to the very end. Belief is holding firm to the very end. So if belief is all about persisting and holding firm, well, then unbelief can also persist and also hold firm. Like the ancient Israelites, it can persist and grow to the point of outward denial and rejection of God's promises. And that's a scary thing. That's why at the beginning of chapter 4, the writer begins by saying, Therefore... Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. The warning is there. And by the way, that's already a little bit toned down because the original was more like like a flashing neon light. It It doesn't say let us be careful. It says let us fear. Let us fear that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Missing out on that greater rest, falling and remaining in unbelief, that's something we need to be fearful of. Now, I can't help but think of the engaged couples who have had their wedding days over the last two years, right? In the lead-up to their wedding, uh, most of them have voluntarily self-isolated to avoid catching COVID or risk getting sick, because otherwise they have to book everything and restart the process all over again, right? And so for them, the promise of their wedding day, it's so close. And so they, they, they make the decision to, do, to, to act in such a way to not compromise them from getting there. Right? They fear missing their wedding day. They're careful not to miss out. And so the writer says to us, our rest is so close. Don't do anything that will compromise yourself from reaching it. Fear missing it. Be careful not to miss it. In other words, be on the lookout for any hints and traces of unbelief in your life. And so the question has to be asked for us. Are you struggling with unbelief? Are you on the trajectory of turning away from the living God? Now, I'm not talking about doubts. Every believer has doubts. Finding answers to doubts is one way God actually grows us and matures us as believers. So if you've got doubts in any form, chat to one of your leaders, chat to me. We'd love to journey with you in that, yeah? But that's not unbelief. Unbelief, at least from the book of Hebrews, is the thought and action that says, I don't believe what God says is true here. I can't hold firm to the promises of God that apply to this situation. And I need to find my answers elsewhere. That's unbelief. Maybe we should apply it to God's promise of rest. Maybe that'll help. So if you recall from our first point, we've got a future rest um, where we will one day cease from our works as God did from His. So that's chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. We'll one day cease from our works like God did from His. Our future rest will be a kind, be of the same kind as God's rest at creation. So unbelief or beginning to not believe would be thoughts and actions that say, I don't believe, What God says is true here. I can't hold firm to the promises of God that he has a better rest for me and I need to actually turn and find answers elsewhere. So what would that look like? What might unbelief or at least beginning to not believe look like in that situation? Well, um, one possibility might be to overindulge in rest and delights. Yeah? One possible way that unbelief or beginning to unbelief might look like is to overindulge in rests and delights. We're subtly saying to God, you've promised a better rest, yes, but I'm choosing to live my life ignoring you and that promise. And so we might believe, we might make decisions, we might plan in such a way that show we believe that the best rest that we'll actually ever get isn't his rest, uh, but that extended beach holiday that long service leave, that retirement. And so everything we do, everything we work towards, every decision we make is to that and not the rest that God promises. We may feel or live like we won't be happy or get another chance to enjoy and delight in things if we don't take hold of it as soon as we can. That sort of thinking, that overindulging in rest and delights says to God, your promise of rest doesn't seem so great. I need to make and find my own answers. That's one possibility. Another possibility of unbelief, or again, beginning to not believe, um, is the opposite, right? Underappreciating rest and delights, not overindulging, underappreciating. Again, suddenly saying to God, Yes, you've promised rest, but I'm choosing to live my life ignoring you and your promise. And so we might believe that God first and foremost cares about our productivity. Right, that the Christian life is about duty before all else and doing those duties and disciplines, which skews the way we see God, how we might work ourselves down to the bone and again, the decisions we make. We may schedule and live life in such a way that there's never room in the margins. We sleep minimally more often than not. And we feel like if we don't make the most of every moment, we're unacceptable and not proving ourselves to others and we're not proving ourselves to God. underappreciating God's rest and delights. That's again saying to him, your promise of rest doesn't seem so great. I need to make and find my own answers now. That's unbelief. Now that's just a list I've come up with. I'm sure there's more to add to that, but the point is, if you continue in either of those directions, the writer is saying, you are putting yourself in harm's way. We are increasing the temptation to harden our hearts to God and His word to us. And the further along we go, the more likely we are to grow to have unbelieving hearts that outwardly turn away from the living God as the first generation of Israelites did. And so would we hear the writer's warning? Would we turn back to God and hold firm to His promises to the very end? So that's looking out for what's harmful. Um, Let's move on to looking out for what's helpful. Yeah, Looking out for what's helpful. Because to remain faithful to God's promise of rest, um, to hold firm is actually difficult to do on our own. We do need help. We need to look for what's helpful. We need helpful voices in our ears and in our lives. And the writer points to two related directions to hear helpful voices in our ears and to our lives. The first voice that we need to hear from are the voice of Jesus' followers, other Jesus' followers. Um, Read from verse 3, verse 12 again. He says see to it brothers and sisters that none of you have a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. See the solution to holding firm to the promises of God isn't just to look out for the harmfulness of unbelief but also to encourage one another daily. As long as it's called today don't just avoid hardening your heart by yourself. Encourage one another today so that sin's deceitfulness doesn't harden your heart. See, what's the rightest point? Sin will deceive you. Sin will stop you and harden your heart, and you need the regular encouragement of others to remind you of sin's deceitfulness. We need to constantly hear that what it offers to us is empty, and that what God offers and promises is far, far better. Friends, if we are left to ourselves, our souls are deprived from hearing what we most need to hear. We are left vulnerable to sin's deception. Instead of standing firm in the promises of God, sin's deceptive hold over us grows ever firmer. And the promises of God's rest, though objectively beautiful and wonderful, can over time become subjectively and experientially dim. I need this. You need this. Our church needs this. Uh, many years ago, I visited um, Yosemite National Park, right? It's a magnificent national park. Um, and one of the must-see attractions uh, in this park are these giant trees. Um, they're called sequoia trees. Um, anyone know what I'm talking about, sequoia trees? Yeah, seeing a few nots good. Um, They've got postcards that you can buy where you can see cars driving through the middle of these trees as if it were a tunnel. That's how big they are, yeah? At full growth, these trees uh, can grow up to an average of 76 metres high. Um, not only that, these trees um, often stand around for thousands of years. Like they're super strong, and they weather just about every storm. Now, it's interesting to find out how they do that. Right? How do they How do they stand for so long? Well, um, most people's first guess to how they do that is they must have roots that, that go really deep into the ground to keep the tree intact. Um, but in reality, the roots of the trees are actually very shallow. Um, it goes up to 76 meters high, but the roots really don't go any further than three meters. And so you've got to think, hey, like, that doesn't make sense. How does it not topple over, over thousands of years? Well, you see, the sequoia roots of the tree, they don't spread downwards. They spread sideways. And as they spread sideways, they entangle themselves with other root systems of other sequoas, and they form this incredible tight web. And together, they stand strong to weather any storm. That, friends, is the picture of what we encourage to do for each other. On our own, we topple over. The roots that we have, no matter how long we've been a Christian, no matter how much you've read, how much you've lived out, they only go so deep by yourself. Because sin still deceives. We need others. We need their voice to bring the words of Christ to us. And I don't mean from the front like right now from me to you. I mean the words that we can give to each other. Friends, the truth that I need to hear when I'm in the deception of sin is far more clear and powerful if it comes from you than if I'm trying to pull that truth out of my own head by myself. The point is that I need you, I need your voice, and we need each other. And so in the spirit of needing one another to say what we actually need to hear, and please hear this from a place of love and concern i reckon our church is on the back foot in this area like i really do yeah seriously on the back foot and i'm not singling anyone or any group in particular pretty much across our church from leaders to partners to regulars and pretty much across every demographic on Sundays, on CGs, other opportunities for fellowship. Numbers aren't everything, but at the same time, numbers are all considerably down. Our ability as a pastoral team to explain absences is actually becoming harder and harder to do. We we just don't know anymore. Now, I know that there are many, many reasons for why that's the case. And I know there's no one single answer for that. It's not black and white. There's more than meets the eye. I know there's nuance here. That we know that there's nuance in all of this, but at the same time, because we rarely speak like this, let me just ask one question for us. Yeah, if God says we need each other so that we won't be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, how can we possibly do that if we aren't even in consistent and predictable proximity to each other, physically and relationally? It's not possible. We need each other. We need each other's voices. I'll stop there. But the other voice, um, not just of other Jesus followers that's helpful, um, that we need to hear is God's voice. Yeah, God's voice. We need God's voice to help us hold firm to his promises. Uh, Now, in some ways, that's kind of what our whole passage has been trying to prove. Right? The writer has gone into the Old Testament for the benefit of his hearers. He's gone to great lengths to explain, to interpret, to teach God's Word. And it's a famous verse, chapter 4, verse 12, about God's Word being living and active and sharper and all that sort of stuff. It's as if he's saying, if you study God's Word, if you hear what He's still saying to you, you'll see how alive and active it is. That His words, His promises, they're not empty, meaningless words on an old book's page. They are alive. And they are precise. It's as if they were sharper than the sharpest knife in the world. Because if you hear it, and if you hear it clearly, it will divide soul and spirit. It will divide joint and marrow. It will judge the thoughts and attitudes of your heart. See, if, you are, if we are before God's living word, we can't do what Adam and Eve tried to do in the garden. Right? Where they tried to hide themselves and cover themselves from an all-seeing God. That, that's just foolishness. You can't do that. Friends, when there are things that need exposing, when there is sin that needs undeceiving, nothing is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything can be laid bare before the living and active word of God. And that's why we need to hear his voice. Yes, we need the words of others to bring the words of Christ to us, but we also need God's word to be directly speaking to us. We need it for our own sake, right? Like a skilled surgeon, we need to uncover, cut, and expose things in our life that need exposure. We can only do that if God shows it to us. And God's word has the power to do that. But we also need it for the sake of others because how else are we going to encourage them with God's words if we're not familiar with it in the first place? And in terms of the promise of rest, until we hear and agree with God's assessment of our restlessness, we will forever be searching for what God alone can give to us. And so to close, and I've got the band to come up. <clears throat> um, friends, would we hear God's promise of a far, far better rest? A rest that we can experience now, but fully experience and share with Him in glory. In the meantime, would we be wary and look out for what's harmful? The danger and pull that unbelief has to harden our hearts as it did to the Israelites in the wilderness. And we also look out for what is helpful, so that we hold firm. In the voice of other believers, and from God's living and active Word, because of what God has in store for us is truly far, far better. Yeah, let's stand. We'll sing.